You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com. Good afternoon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElvenny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events. Okay, welcome to Intelligent Talk. The website is intelligenttalk.com. We're very pleased to have Mr. Nick Jellicoe on. He's the author of Jutland, The Unfinished Battle. Most of us don't know much about uh, the Battle of Jutland, but it was an important naval engagement fought uh, May 31st to June 1st, 1916, by British and German naval forces off the coast of Denmark. Had Britain lost that battle, it could very well have meant losing the war. Mr. Jellicoe's grandfather was Admiral John Jellicoe, the commander of the British fleet. So, Mr. Jellicoe, thank you for coming on today. Thank you very much for having me. Could you please just discuss um, the British strategy in regards to Germany and the naval blockade and uh, what that meant? Yes, I think the, the, the naval blockade was really a key, key uh, element in waging economic warfare on, on Germany. Um, clearly, traditionally, the Navy had been used uh, uh, in close blockade on enemy uh, coasts to hold ships uh, off the enemy coast, uh, and that, that had been used uh, since Napoleonic times. Um, what made this period different was that the, the new weapons of, of mines and submarines made this sort of strategy extremely risky, uh, playing this kind of this kind of game so close to an enemy coast. So a distant blockade was made use of, um, and by that I mean that the the North Sea was bottled bottled up. Uh, the Grand Fleet uh, protecting the work of the Tenth Cruiser Squadron way up to the north, um, blocking the gap between the Shetlands and, Nor- and Norway. Uh, and then in the south, um, uh, Britain used uh, barrages uh, armed with mines uh, to really block off the channel uh, at Dover. Um, it's clear that sometimes this naval policy was at odds with Britain's foreign policy. Um, clearly uh, a tactic like this, which involved interdicting ships on the high sea to make sure that they weren't carrying uh, contraband to Germany, would infuriate, as it did, neutral powers. Um, it's quite interesting that the uh, Chief of Naval Operations, William Benson, uh, later on told William Sims when he came over to head up uh, American for, uh, naval forces in Europe, don't let the British pull the wool over your eyes. we just as soon fight them. Uh, it was a close-run thing, and in fact, in the end, Germany uh, infuriated uh, America more. After Jutland, Scheer saw that he might be able to use the same strategy that the British were using on him uh, and on Germany. Um, he didn't feel that uh, he could uh, win an outright naval confrontation, but what he could do, he felt, was to bring Britain to its knees uh, by interdicting her trade. And Britain, frankly, 
was far more dependent on overseas trade than Germany. Germany was a land power. Britain, an island nation, was a sea power. Anything that we needed that couldn't be produced locally had to come across the seas. Um, so this is why you know, we put in a, a naval blockade really to uh, uh, instigate and to further a, stro a slow strangulation of the German war economy. All right. So um, the blockade was put to basically, as you said, slowly starve Germany, try to get them to capitulate. Um, they, ironically, Germany had some success in the East uh, initially in their battles and, and more successful than they certainly had in the West. But England yeah. was trying to strangle uh, Germany. You had the British fleet based up north, the northern United Kingdom. It was Scapa Flow, correct? Was it British? Yes, yeah, Scapa Flow is, is uh, the traditional British naval base on, on the Orkney Islands, uh, just northeast of the Scottish mainland. Okay, so just if we discuss that, the, the Battle of Jutland, could you just first tell me what the general orders were that were given to your grandfather? Because the importance of the fleet was needed to blockade Germany. So, so obviously the British did not want to lose that fleet. What were the general orders given to Admiral Jellicoe? I, I have not actually seen written general orders, but it was um, clear that the annihilation of the German fleet was actually low down in terms of the order of priorities that was was uh, that my father, my grandfather, was operating under. I mean, at the beginning of the war, the most important thing actually was to protect the supply routes to the British expeditionary force fighting in France. That was actually fundamental. Um, it was felt this was going to be a land war, uh, and the navy's role was an economic uh, role. Um, the secondary role was to sort of hamper hamper German trade. And then lastly, but the least likely uh, 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 objective was actually to prevent a German invasion. The, the general orders, though, that my grandfather was uh, working under was really to try and make sure that the uh, Germans would be lured out of their uh, harbour, uh, their harbours at Kiel and Wilhelmshaven, and slowly Britain could actually uh, get rid of this uh, quite irritating uh, menace, a fleet in being, which was using up a, a tremendous amount of resources. It's quite ironic, though, that uh, Admiral Scheer was thinking of a sortie at exactly the same time. So both fleets were going out to actually see if they could tempt out smaller, uh, smaller uh, elements of the other's fleet and overwhelm them. Now, the British fleet was substantially bigger than the German fleet, correct? It was substantially bigger, not as uh, large in terms of the ratio of dominance that my grandfather would have liked, um, but in key elements like, like the battleship, the Dreadnought, uh, at Jutland, the British fielded 28 dreadnoughts, uh, the Germans 16. What's maybe more important is that within these uh, numbers uh, is the type of dreadnought uh, being fielded. The British actually were able to put on, on the sea that day four of the most powerfully gunned dreadnoughts, the new Queen Elizabeth class, uh, that the Germans could not rival. These machines were the technological... Uh, edge 
uh, absolutely at the at the, the, at the uh, what's the expression at the uh, at the very edge of, of technological advance. They were uh, the latest and greatest. Um, but in that sense, I, I might just do an aside here. Um, there's a lesson to be learned that you know if you put too many eggs into one technology basket. Sometimes you're risk averse, and, and indeed that was one of maybe the lessons of, of Jutland coming out of Jutland. So let me, let me, aside, excuse me. Um, now, aside from uh, from the, the the battleships, I mean, both fleets came to the battle with uh, a battle cruiser fleet. Uh, the British around about nine, um, the Germans five. They were fairly equal in terms of destroyers, seventy-eight versus sixty. Uh, and in light cruisers, the British also had an advantage somewhere around three to one. So let me just, if I could, summarize the German strategy, and you can tell me if I'm, if I'm correct. Basically, Scheer and Hipper wanted to get part of the British fleet out first because they didn't want to take on the con- combined might of the British. So their goal was basically to gold um, the British into deploying some forces out first without the main fleet. They were shelling the coast of eastern England. They were doing raiding, etc. Yep. And, and and in fact, the British do deploy Admiral Beatty, who was basically your grandfather's deputy. He comes out with yep. part of the fleet, and he engages uh, the Germans. W- what were the results of that first battle, please, that first engagement? Uh, you're talking about Docker Bank? Yes, the first engagement between Beatty and the, the Germans. Yeah, well, it's interesting, actually. I mean, until Jutland, they had, there wasn't a, a battle fleet engagement. Um, Doggerback was uh, a disappointment in, in the sense that, yes, uh, um, the Blucher was sunk. It was a, a very large uh, battleship uh, that the Germans lost. But the chance to actually uh, inflict much, much higher uh, damage was lost. Uh, things went wrong in signaling. Um, it was the British had had uh, had a pretty advanced um, uh, capability of of signals um, decryption, and were aware that there was going to be an attack, and were waiting for this to happen. So that uh, it was even more disappointing when. Uh, the uh, trap that was laid uh, could not be sprung properly. Yes, yeah, so the, the initial engagement, you said, is, is disappointing. I, I want to go back to the um, the main fleet of, of Admiral Jellicoe. Could you first mm. tell me what Room 40 was, please, the British? Yes, I mean, Room 40 was, in fact, the, 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 the physical room uh, um, in the Admiralty into which... Uh, signals uh, um, came and were decrypted. Uh, it was largely a decryption function rather than an intelligence or an analysis function. And I think that was, again, something that changes quite radically after uh, Jutland. Okay, so so Room 40 is, is doing the best they can to give uh, the intelligence, or as you said, the, the encryption and, and give the information to the British. Um, the main fleet now leaves on, under your grandfather, and there is an engagement with German naval forces. Your grandfather skillfully puts them in, as you said, a T position twice. And could yep. you describe w- what a T position is, please, and how that worked? Yes, a T position is really when you, you cross over an advancing line of ships coming towards you, and um, you are able to 
bring to bear um, many more guns uh, because you're firing from a wider arc on the top of the tee, uh, whereas the opponent uh, finds most of uh, his guns actually blocked by the, the ship in front. Uh, so it's a desirable position to be in, um, but um, uh, I think it also gives the impression that, that these battles are tremendously set-piece. Um, and in fact, you know, there was a fair amount of chaos on the day, too. Right. So I, I believe your grandfather gets the Germans in a T position twice, as they say, and the Germans do a good job, too. When they see yeah. the superior British fleet, they do a good job maneuvering away, and then inexplicably they come back uh, at some point and re-engage the British, even though they're heavily outnumbered. I wasn't sure why they did that. Yeah. Yes, I mean, I, I, well, uh, if one sort of walks through it, uh, when uh, Scheer initially turned away, um, he executed a maneuver which was called a, a battle turnaway. And it was a, a, a maneuver where uh, involving each ship turning on its own axis as the ship in front has started to execute that turn. Um, so at um, a fleet under full steam and under battle conditions, it's an extremely gutsy maneuver. Uh, and he executed it with brilliance. Uh, one moment, my grandmother could see a number of ships out in front, never more than sort of maybe two uh, or three at maximum because of the conditions on the day. But three minutes later, there was nothing to be seen. What Sheer believes uh, is that he might be able to cross over the back of the British fleet as it's advancing uh, from his um, uh, port, from his left to starboard to the right. Uh, in fact, he makes a mistake and blunders right back into the middle of the um, the British line of battle, which is extended out around about five miles. So it's a huge mass of uh, guns uh, piling steel, uh, throwing steel across uh, across a ten thousand yard gap. What would the um, the effect then? Uh after the battle, what were the the approximate battle losses on, on both sides? Do you have a rough um, recollection? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the interesting thing is that in terms of, of, of wounded, um, they're approximately equal, uh, roughly, I think, uh, 600 on the British side, uh, somewhere around about uh, 500 on the German side. Where it really differs, though, is that the uh, British lose close on six, uh, around 6,000 uh, sailors and the Germans 2,500. And that, those deaths sprung from uh, really one source of uh, error, and that is the management of uh, the magazines and protecting those magazines or having failed to protect those magazines from flash coming down from a strike in, in, in uh, uh, one of the turrets. And uh, when, a when a battleship or when a battle cruiser in this instance uh, is hit and goes down, um, if you're lucky enough to survive, uh, you probably die of shock or exposure in the North Sea. 
Um, but out of crews of uh, roughly 1,100 people, I mean, on the first ship to go down, indefatigable, three people uh, bob up in the water. And one of those dies in the water almost immediately. Uh, on Queen Mary, which goes down half an hour into the battle, it's uh, 17 survivors out of, out of a crew of 1,200. Um, on Invincible, at, at 6.30, uh, roughly seven uh, out of a crew of 1,100. I mean, they are monumental losses, instantaneous, instantaneous death. A shell strikes, a thousand psi pressure wave goes through a ship, killing everybody that's on a ship. Uh, and in fact, one sees some of the photographs, one particular photograph of Indefatigable, which, as I say, was the first uh, battle cruiser to go down. And what we thought for a hundred years was a ship still manned with living sailors sinking is, in fact, a ghost ship that was hit and destroyed six minutes earlier with probably not a single person alive on board. Uh, these were catastrophic uh, explosions. The British had too much ammunition, didn't they, on the ships and, and just, just overloaded with ammunition that was easily flammable? It, it wasn't so much a question of, of too much ammunition. It was more a question that uh, the cordite that they used was particularly unstable uh, and that, um, that while there were protective measures on paper in force. Under the heat of battle, a lot of the training was thrown to the, to the aside. And the philosophy at the time was the faster you can feed the guns and pour on the shell, the more likely you are to bring down a, an opponent. I, was, I say the philosophy at the time. It wasn't a philosophy with which my grandfather agreed and actually tried very strongly to argue against it. That being the case... Uh, gunners uh, brought up uh, and stocked, stockpiled as, as, as much uh, uh, cordite uh, outside of the uh, protective shells of the, uh, um, uh, 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 you know, uh, outside of the protective uh, steel shells uh, of the magazines, and uh, the smallest spark uh, could kill a ship. All right, so I just want to just want to summarize um, this battle. Basically, 1916 off the coast of of Denmark. First, Admiral Beatty engages. As you said, there's a lot of confusion. There's um, then your, your your grandfather's main fleet engages. There's uh, some of the Room 40 intelligence or uh, the de um, description of what the intelligence was was just simply uh, not correct. Some of the information that he got. There was a lot of confusion on both sides. The British took somewhat higher losses than the Germans, but your grandfather, as you said, skillfully got them in that T position twice and did a lot of damage on the Germans. Now, the German fleet decides to uh, withdraw, and um, there was some controversy now about why your grandfather didn't pursue uh, the retreating German fleet and try to have like a Battle of Trafalgar-type knockout. Could you just explain sure. his, his thinking on that, please? No, sure. Um, well, there's a in the phases of the battle, there's a phase after the battle fleets meet and uh, they start to run south that I call the turnaway. Uh, and this is when a torpedo attack, a spoiling torpedo attack, is launched against the uh, British line of dreadnoughts. And uh, its sole intent was actually to uh, drive the British away uh, from 
the German battle line so that the older uh, pre-dreadnoughts could get back south. My grandfather basically had two choices in front of him, either to turn towards the torpedoes and to try and uh, uh, close the gap um, or to run from the torpedoes. Closing towards is extremely dangerous. You imagine a 20,000, 25,000 ton dreadnought, a pretty lumbering object, uh, plowing through the water uh, under very difficult conditions of visibility, trying to spot torpedoes coming towards them at a closing uh, speed of somewhere around uh, 45, 50 knots and nimbly avoid them. Or you, you turn away from the torpedoes and actually try to outrun them. The problem here was that having turned away, um, contact was lost. Uh, contact with between the van, the leading elements of the British the battle fleet, uh, and the battle cruisers and battle fleet of the German high seas fleet was lost. And uh, Sir Jellica was always accused uh, afterwards, uh, after the war, of really having uh, been too conservative, not having wanted to take risks. Now, he said before uh, the battle actually took place, when he was outlining what he thought the tactics of the day would be, that he would take the section. <laughs> and he was fully supported by the Admiralty, including Churchill, uh, by people who would later be criticizing him. The, I think, you know, it's an interesting issue, not just because I look at it in terms of a geometric uh, issue. If he were to turn towards the torpedoes, there was a certain point in turning his battleships that he would have actually presented a target that was not 95 foot in the beam, but would have been 600 foot a perfect, a submariner's uh, perfect uh, firing solution. Not only that, the threat was coming from the north-west. The German fleet was heading to the south. If Jellico, my grandfather, had turned into the torpedo stream, he would have actually been turning away and losing distance with the German battle fleet at the same time. And that hasn't really been discussed, he was in a situation where it was kind of, you'd be damned both ways. I don't, he didn't feel that he should take the risk and um, lose some of his battleships. Now, it's an interesting point here because I feel that, you know, while at Jutland, the British Navy was in the lee of Trafalgar and was uh, you know, um, sinking and swimming in that tradition. I think the Royal Navy today is still has some of the same tendency to uh, be stuck in the lee of Jutland. Um, it's caught in this Nelsonian tradition of you can do no wrong if you close with the enemy. Well, you can. And you need to just think out firing solutions and think out uh, ahead of time if you have the opportunity what the costs and the risks are. Frankly, he weighed them up and felt that this was too high a risk to actually turn into uh, the oncoming stream. I think where he was can be criticised, however, 
is for not organizing a much more vigorous uh, use of either the uh, light cruisers, but particularly the destroyers, to actually uh, advance out ahead and to maintain uh, the contact uh, with the enemy. Um, I think in Jutland, you know, a battle fought under the really appalling conditions, as I said, of visibility, not only because of the North Sea fog of the day, this was towards the end of the day, um, there was floating cordite uh, over the sea, uh, there were chemical smoke screens uh, uh, floating around as well. Um, not an easy condition at all to to fight such a major battle. Nevertheless, um, I think you know there is this issue of the lack of uh, really uh, competent uh, uh, signals and reporting back to the flagship of very very fast changing battle conditions. I don't think it was a question of him over-controlling. I think that uh, it was necessary that he controlled uh, the line. Otherwise, it could have actually been catastrophic so, uh, in terms of uh, uh, outcome. So let me just let me just summarize and see if you, if you agree with me. So basically, it's for people that don't remember the Battle of Trafalgar, 1805. The Admiral Nelson, whose ship you can see to this day in Portsmouth, the HMS Victory, defeats essentially the French and the Spanish fleet, a very important victory, basically stops any chance of Napoleon going to invade England. And people were hoping, I guess, that Admiral Jellicoe, when they had some initial skirmish with the German uh, forces, they would then he would then pursue them and be like Nelson, like wipe them out. But but you're saying that um, the visibility was poor, the, the intelligence he had been given was was bad. It was near the end of the day. There was a lot of destruction and chaos. That the, the, the engagement with Beatty had, had not had not gone well. And, and basically, all, in addition to the torpedoes, there were also mines that the Germans were laying, too. And, and, yeah. and Churchill had also said, too, that your grandfather was the only person that could lose the fleet and lose the war in one afternoon. Didn't he say that? Yes, he did. I mean, because he was taking almost all the fleet elements to sea uh, in what could be a critical battle. Uh, when Nelson was fighting, he took roughly 30 percent of the uh, capital ships available to him. So if he had lost, it would have actually had a, a lesser outcome. Oh, I think the, that's the, interesting. I didn't know he only had 30% hmm. of the British fleet. That's interesting. I didn't know that. It, it's somewhere around that sort okay. of number. But I think that, you know, also, you, you know, if you compare and contrast, I mean, in, in Nelson's uh, uh, time, the two fleets were approaching each other at a probably, I don't know, steady five, four to five knots uh, under perfect blue sky conditions. Uh, Nelson is uh, approaching a battle line um, which is made up of two linguistically separated uh, forces, a Spanish-speaking force and a French-speaking force. Um, he's also uh, approaching a force that has uh, pretty demoralized and not in great condition. They've had harvest failures on the continent uh, uh, just before. Um, but you must remember that when Nelson fought uh, Trafalgar, um, he had fought with his so-called band of brothers for seven or eight years. He knew them intimately, and he knew his equipment intimately. The, the, the speed of technology change was pretty minimal in ship design. If you contrast that to Jutland, uh, I mean, the torpedo 
had a range of probably, I don't know, 600 to 1,000 yards at 1,900. It was now close to 15,000 yards, so it could actually be fired at the extreme range of, of gunnery. Uh, the submarine uh, was a threat that, uh, at the beginning of 1914, was scoffed by almost both sides. Uh, things change at a very, very rapid pace. And I think that, you know, what we also fail to see here is that Trafalgar is 1805, the defeat in the Treaty of Vienna is 1815. Things, it, it wasn't a decisive battle. It was made into a, I think, into a, it was given mythical proportions by the British. And I think that was to the detriment uh, of the British. It built up such expectations that it allowed certainly politicians, but absolutely, certainly, uh, the naval officers who were actually to undertake uh, command, incredibly restricted uh, manoeuvre and, and completely unrealistic expectations of what could be achieved on one afternoon. This was a philosophy that was put forward by the American naval writer Mahan that one could have a decisive naval naval battle. It wasn't to be the case. And I think, you know, Joplin absolutely proved that no, it was going to be a long slog. Um, and the Navy's role was not going to be one of of glory and recognition of one extraordinary battle. It was going to be a long, quiet uh, slog that might not get recognized. And indeed, I think a hundred years later, it is only just starting to kind of dawn on people just how powerful the Royal Navy's role was during the First World War. Just as an aside, too, you mentioned in the book, which I hadn't known, that Battle of Trafalgar, while it was a victory, it sort of retarded the British uh, shipbuilding industry and the British naval advances because they were so um, full of pride and success of what they had done that they didn't really do a lot of technological advancements. And as a result, the British Navy yeah. actually got retarded over the next 100 years from advancements they could otherwise have had. So in some ways you could say it was a Pyrrhic victory, but of course it's gone down as a great victory. And you mentioned the distinction between that and Jutland. When I think yeah. about um, your grandfather, I think about, um, well, two things come to mind. Uh, Churchill and Air Marshal Doubting, and, and Air Marshal Doubting had wanted to keep Churchill from keeping the RAF planes to defend France. I mean, Churchill was intent upon sending them over there, and Doubting realized those planes would be needed for the defense of England. So as a result, France fell, but the RAF was able to, of course, defend off the um, German fighters and preserve the country. So I think Doubting was, was probably um, made the correct decision there to husband those forces. Or I think of Admiral Spruance in Midway, who would engage the Japanese. He then decided not to uh, pursue the Japanese fleet, and it would have led them right into a huge battle group that Yamamoto still had, and maybe would have, we would have lost the U.S. aircraft carrier. So Spruance's decision was, I think, the correct decision, as, as you could certainly argue that your grandfather's decision was too. It was too risky to risk the entire fleet to pursue something with mines and torpedoes and fog and haziness and also the faulty info on Rome 40. I mean, at this point, Admiral Jellicoe must not have had too much confidence in many things, given the way Beatty had performed, who would later criticize him, I know, given the Rome 40 intelligence. And, um, and Churchill would, of course, criticize him, too, when, when he had approved, as you said, these orders had all been approved. Do you think all the criticism of your grandfather is essentially just politics? Is that just the way people behave after <laughs> No, I think some of it he could have uh, probably managed better. Um, you know, managing spin in war, managing the narrative is incredibly important. Um, the Navy, the Admiralty, uh, bungled the reporting of Jutland uh, 
uh, in an extraordinary fashion. Within a, a week, I think it had to uh, issue five revised uh, appreciations uh, on on what had happened. Uh, and indeed, at the end of the day, they invited a former journalist, uh, Winston Churchill, to actually try and explain to the British public what had happened. Um, I think uh, I think that. Um, oh gosh, <laughs> it's, it, you've asked a very large question, so I should try and tackle it slowly. I think okay. you know uh, all these things uh, always get uh, entwined in politics. Get entwined in uh, how the stories are told. Uh, I think J.R.J., my grandfather was not particularly good at handling uh, the press and media and understanding the importance of that. Um, he was loved by his men. But the fact of the matter is that you actually have to keep the uh, morale of the nation uh, in mind as well. So journalists weren't allowed, for example, in Scapa. They were allowed and very much welcomed in Rosyth with the battle cruiser feet. And and there are examples of journalists being embedded uh, uh, on the battle cruisers to tell the story. Um, I think where things went very badly wrong was that um, when uh, John Jellicoe left the command of the Grand Fleet at the end of 1916 and, and Sir David Beatty took over uh, command, I mean, clearly Sir David Beatty stepped into a very tough uh, role, but he very soon... Uh, won the confidence of the fleet. What then happened, though, was not very tasteful, and that is that the uh, the official reporting and the uh, the official uh, yeah the official reporting uh, that was to come out um, should not have been seen or interfered with by either Admiral Jellicoe or Beatty. Uh, Beatty got hold of it and. Uh, wanted to have certain things changed. It's a natural inclination, but it's a very dangerous inclination when one is trying to preserve for posterity uh, the truth and the facts of what actually happened on the day. It has to be a learning uh, moment. Uh, and for many years, uh, judgment was embroiled in controversy where it was more a... Um, a slugging match between the charismatic appeal of two men, um, my grandfather, very cerebral, rather small, not great looking, Sir David Beatty, very courageous, very attractive, maybe far too, uh, 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 what's the word? Um, charismatic? No, no, uh, far too impatient to, to run after the enemy. Uh, certainly charismatic, but, but right. by... By, by no means do I disagree with that. But what this did was it actually took the focus away from the deeper questions about what the role of the Navy was, uh, how victories are defined, that they're not necessarily... The metrics of, of, of defining a victory aren't necessarily quantitative. They actually should be intimately tied back to what the objectives of each party coming to a, the field of battle are and whether those objectives are met. And I think it's only in, 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 in the stretching of time that one can actually see the greater consequences of a battle or a campaign. And indeed, you know, I mean, Jutland went from, uh, and my grandfather himself even com 
blamed. He didn't quite know. You know, one moment it was he was perceived as a victor, the next moment as the loser of the battle. But what is clear is that there were far, far wider strategic implications. One being the fact that the Germans decided that uh, a one-on-one engagement with the uh, Royal Navy was out of the question as a surface engagement, and that the better way was actually to uh, reinstigate uh, unrestricted submarine warfare and do so with uh, uh, an increased lethality uh, and a, a real focus on trying to change the war and defeat Britain over five months. Well, they very nearly came close to doing that. In the last two weeks of April 1917, British and Allied shipping losses were just shy of a a million tons, 860,000 tons. That's a huge amount when you consider that the overall uh, carrying capacity was probably about 11.5 million tons. And if you're losing that much tonnage that fast, you're soon going to be out of the war because you, you can't feed your armies and your populations are going to starve. It's interesting. And that... It's interesting how World War II kind of repeated itself because after the Bismarck was sunk, they didn't want to have another surface engagement with the British either, and they relied upon the submarines, and they kept the Grafs free in the sister ship of the Bismarck in Norway, essentially to protect it. So it's it's sort of the same thing they did in World War II. They they avoided surface engagements and stuck to the submarines uh, with the initial... I think, I mean, I think that, the, you know, that the Navy, whether it's the Hochseeflotte or the Kriegsmarine, were always the second-rate uh, service, whereas for the British, it was the senior service. We're an island nation. We depend on the sea, although we may have lost that vision a little bit today, whereas Germany was a land power. And for Germany to try and develop a, a, a muscle at sea... Um, Uh, was out of character and very difficult to execute. And certainly Hitler uh, only gave credence to the idea of building the German Navy in 1939. And the success of the uh, submarine forces, uh, again, was repeated as a a terrible mistake by the Germans that they didn't start off with uh, much increased uh, submarine resources when Dönitz... uh, int- reintroduce that vigor into the submarine war on the Atlantic. It was a terrifying prospect for the British. And when your grandfather passed away in the 30s, the um, the German forces saluted him, right? There was um, a ceremony in his honor. Yes, yes, I think because, I mean, my grandfather, where well, he'd fought with the Germans in China in 1900, so had David Beatty. Um, and I think one should never forget that, uh, you know, uh, for current current allies can be former foes, um, but there were many very deep friendships um, between the officers of these two navies. Um, and I think Sir David Beatty's reputation with the Germans suffered as a result of how the internment of the high seas fleet was handled in November 1918, um, the surface fleet wasn't surrendered. It was handed over for internment. It was only the submarine force that was surrendered because they were seen as being almost a, a criminal uh, weapon of war. Um, and when Sir David Beatty asked that, well, not asked, ordered that the German flag be hauled down at sunset and not 
raised again without his permission, it was taken as a a very, very deep uh, snub by most German officers, most German naval officers, and they never really forgave him for that. It's interesting when when you know, when John Jellico died, the flags of three nations, the Royal Navy, French Navy, and the Kriegsmarine were lowered to mark that moment. And somewhere close to, I think, 150 admirals attended his funeral service at Westminster. Um, whereas with David Beatty, they only sent the naval attaché in London. And it was very much because of that. It was a resentment that just didn't go away. All right. Well, I just want to um, summarize because we're running out of time. But uh, so the nineteen sixty sixteen engagement was important. It was, it was the largest battleship engagement up until that time. Is that right? Well, it, it was the only the only uh, uh, dreadnought engagement that has ever happened. The only um, dreadnought because I think you know in the in the in the uh, uh, in the Second World War we 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 head more towards carrier uh, task forces. Uh, and never really have the the kind of uh, battlefield engagement that we had at Jutland. Yep. Basically, your grandfather preserved the fleet. The Germans never challenged the British again surface-wise. It once again occurred off the coast of Denmark, the Jutland Peninsula. Um, could you please give your website again, uh, Mr. Jellicoe? Oh, yeah, sure. Well, I've got actually two websites okay. now. Um, the first one, I mean, the one to do on this is, is jutland1916.com. And what's useful there is not only can one define the sort of the normal things that you would find on any website about this, but there's also an animation about the battle, which is a particularly good way to understand it visually. And plus there's a very, very great depth of uh, material for very serious research. So, for example, there's over a thousand um, uh, scans archive scans of, of my grandfather's obituaries and, and uh, war diaries and things like that. So it's quite useful for, for anybody who wants to go on and, and research. And the other one that I've just launched uh, is Scapa Flow 1919. So that's why I was talking about the impairment of the German fleet, because we're coming uh, in uh, two weeks up to the centenary, the 21st of uh, June 1919, uh, of the scuffling of the German fleet at Scapa Flow. Well, wonderful. Well, once again, we were speaking with uh, Nick Jellicoe, the author of Jutland, the Unfinished Battle, whose grandfather was the admiral in charge of that battle, the Battle of Jutland, a very important battle. Um, this is Intelligent Talk. The website is intelligenttalk.com. Mr. Jellicoe, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank very you. interesting questions. Thanks so much. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye, then.